Welcome back to America on Trial. I'm your host, Josh Hammer. Every day, we will bring you all the legal news that you need to get through the day feeling more prepared and informed as we gear up for this most historic and monumental and indeed litigation and lawfare riddled of presidential elections this November between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. Let's begin, as we always do, by going around the horn. We begin in Fulton County, Georgia, where today is a deadline for the scandal-ridden district attorney, Fonnie Willis, to formally respond to a motion to dismiss this indictment and disqualify her from the case. This is the motion brought by Trump co-defendant Michael Roman, who we were just discussing on the show yesterday. We were saying that we, we really owe Michael Roman a huge, a huge public thank you, a huge public service that he has done by exposing the depth and breadth of Fonnie Willis and Special Prosecutor Nathan Wade, their scandalous, illicit, illicit romantic relationship. The plane tickets they seem to have bought. Michael Roman has also exposed the coordination, the collusion between Fonnie Willis's Fulton County, Georgia DA office and the Joe Biden White House Counsel's office. Again, there's a huge public service there, but this is the deadline today for Fonnie Willis to formally respond in court to this motion to dismiss the indictment. This is all leading up to this big forthcoming hearing on February 15th, where we're actually going to get an evidentiary hearing, where we're going to really get into the weeds about Fonnie Willis and Nathan Wade and that corruption. Perhaps that case might even get moved out of Fulton County, Georgia, as we've discussed on the program. Stay tuned for that. On Monday, there is a deadline at the United States Supreme Court. It's the last day for Donald Trump to file his reply brief in the Insurrection Clause case, the case out of Colorado pertaining to the 14th Amendment. Section 3 attempts to disqualify Donald Trump from the ballot, which the Colorado Supreme Court ruled indeed must be the case recently. There is oral argument at the U.S. Supreme Court set for Thursday, this coming Thursday, February 8th, a huge, huge, high-profile oral argument. We will be all over it on this program next week. Stay tuned for that. Additionally, Today, Friday, February 2nd, is on the legal calendar marked here as a day where the D.C. Circuit, or more, accurate, more accurately, the three-judge panel on the D.C. Circuit that heard the relevant interlocutory appeal, they may issue a decision when it comes to Donald Trump's claim of sweeping presidential immunity that would essentially exculpate him and nullify his entire Jack Smith federal prosecution there in D.C., District Judge Tanya Chutkin rejected his claim of sweeping presidential immunity. Trump appealed it to a three-judge panel on the D.C. Circuit. We are still waiting to, to hear from that. But big news overnight, actually, the court's formal docket, the D.C. District Court's formal docket, this would be Judge Chutkin, they actually formally moved back the anticipated trial date commencement for Donald Trump there in, in the D.C. Circuit. So initially, it was going to be March 4th. That was the initial claim trial date start in the D.C. trial with Jack Smith and Donald Trump. And that is no longer the case. It has been officially moved back on the docket because we are still waiting, as we just discussed, for this ruling from the three-judge panel in the D.C. Circuit, the appeals court over Judge Chuck and whether or not Donald Trump actually has immunity and therefore is going to get out of this thing Essentially, Scott Furry, of course, regardless of what the three-judge panel on the D.C. Circuit rules, whichever side loses can then appeal that to the Supreme Court. We will cross that bridge if slash when we get to it. 
But the point is that, as many of us have been discussing, this thing is going to take a long time in Washington, D.C., and as many of us have also been discussing, that's going to make it exceedingly likely that the first of these four criminal prosecutions to actually get off the ground is going to be the Alvin Bragg case in New York City. Looks like that thing is going to formally start on March 25th. There are some pretrial hearings coming up in the New York Supreme Court on February 15th. You know, ridiculously confusing, the state of New York, they label their courts in just very, very odd way. So the New York Supreme Court there is actually not the highest court in the land. Just an aside there, but in any event, this thing in D.C. is taking a lot longer than perhaps Jack Smith would prefer it take. It is now formally, it is now formally moved past that initially scheduled March 4th start date. So big news there in Washington, D.C., we had a report shifting down to the other Jack Smith case down in Florida. We had a report dropping that Special Counsel Jack Smith is now questioning additional witnesses with respect to the Mar-a-Lago raid. This is the classified documents case here in the state of Florida. He's apparently questioning witnesses about other closets and a, quote, hidden room allegedly inside Mar-a-Lago that the FBI did not actually search, did not actually reach into back in August 2022 in the infamous pre-dawn raid heard around the world. According to this report, there have been several interviews that have spanned a while now. So Jack Smith's investigation there in Florida is is heating up. I, I continue to believe that as far as the actual facts alleged in this case are concerned, it is potentially dangerous for the, the former president for the very simple reason, if nothing else, that he is alleged to have ignored a grand jury subpoena, which is something that as a basic matter of law, you just cannot do that. In the president's corner, at least, you have a judge and a jury pool that is less biased, and you also have an appellate court above that, the 11th Circuit, that is probably more favorable than most of these other appellate courts across the country. In additional Trump litigation-related news, you have more news out of the city of New York. We were just mentioning how Alvin Bragg's trial looks like it is going to be the first to start here, at least of the four criminal prosecutions. That's coming up in late March. New York Times reporting overnight that Alan Weisselberg, who is the longtime, longtime Trump handyman, he is the longtime former CFO of the Trump Organization. The New York Times is reporting that he's in negotiations to plead guilty to perjury. Interestingly, he would be pleading guilty to perjury when it comes to his taking the stand during New York Attorney General Tish James's fraud trial against the Trump Organization. If this sounds a little weird to you, it also sounds a little weird to me, the fact that Alvin Bragg, who is the DA there, he's the prosecutor, he's the one who's doing the Stormy Daniels, Michael Cohen, hush money payments prosecution. It's absurdly frivolous on his face. It's a little weird, right, that he would be getting a, a plea deal from Alan Weisselberg for comments that he made in a an allegedly totally unrelated trial, the civil fraud trial for Tish James. Funny how that works, right? How how Alvin Bragg and Tish James seem to just be openly colluding on this out in the open. Hmm, it's almost like they're actually trying to do the same thing here, which is just transparently get Trump. Oh, by the way, recall that Alvin Bragg and Tish James both ran for their respective offices, New York, New York County district attorney and New York attorney general, respectively, recall that they both ran for those offices on an explicitly get Trump platform. Really, really kind of odd stuff there, isn't it? 
So th that is our recap of Around the Horn there. Again, when it comes to the civil fraud trial, we are still waiting any day now on a big verdict, on a big ruling from Justice Arthur and Goron, who is overseeing that case. It is a chilling case. We will get into it in a later episode more in depth there. That could drop any day at this point, looking like it's unlikely going to be today, probably going to be next week at this point, but difficult, difficult to say with any degree of certainty. So with, with that around the horn, let's go into today's deep dive. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. So yesterday I was speaking at a luncheon in Detroit, Michigan, of all places. I was speaking at the Detroit Athletic Club, and I wasn't even aware of that, but someone in the audience that I was speaking to was talking to me about how Joe Biden was there nearby. He was campaigning nearby in the suburbs of Detroit trying to basically get back into the fold the Muslim-American and Arab-American Voters who have been souring on his candidacy and his presidency due to his strong rhetorical support initially, and I feel a need to emphasize that it is rhetorical support, not necessarily substantive support, for Israel in its defensive war against Hamas barbarism and the Hamas Holocaust of October 7, 2023. And you've probably noticed that things in the Middle East have been heating up of late. You had this horrible, horrific attack in Jordan, Tower 22, the U.S. military base in Jordan this past Sunday, three U.S. soldiers killed there, and there is just continuing, continuing awful, awful drama when it comes to Yemen and the Houthi rebels there and, and the Red Sea, a crucial, a crucial global waterway through which roughly 10% of all global commerce flows, including very large shipments of oil and natural gas the potential rerouting of many of the ships that would normally flow through the Red Sea that would instead otherwise go around the southern tip of the African continent that could add a week, perhaps, onto the journey to the Americas from some of these ships, talk about possible risks for inflation there. Indeed, just a day or two ago, a little discussed report, there was one missile fired from the Houthi rebels, the Iran from the Houthi rebels there in Yemen, that was going towards a U.S. naval ship, and apparently the U.S. Navy ship's defense mechanisms failed until the very, very, very last defense mechanism, which was essentially a Gatlin gun on board that shot down the missile with, based on the report that I read, seconds to spare before tragedy struck. So it, it is a hot situation there, and the President of the United States, Joe Biden, 
has been ramping up a little bit, not a lot, but has ramping up a little bit his attacks back on Houthi installations there in Yemen. This has brought up, as it often does when something like this happens, when the president of the United States starts to bomb a bunch of bad guys in the Middle East, this has brought up one of the older and more constantly recurring constitutional debates when it comes to foreign policy and foreign affairs, which is the debate over war powers and the war powers resolution and declaring war in general. So it's worth noting here that you have somewhat of a bipartisan alliance in the U.S. Congress between typical progressives and indeed some some conservatives from a more kind of 2010-era Tea Party, slightly more libertarian-leaning pro-congressional power bent. You, you have this, this teaming up when it comes to reasserting congressional war powers. And it was a week ago, it was last Friday, that you had a letter sent from a bunch of U.S. congressmen led by Ro, Ro Khanna from California and Warren Davidson from Ohio, who sent a letter to the Biden administration basically saying that you need a formal congressional authorization for use of military force, an AUMF, when it comes to these strikes. This is an argument that has been repeated by certainly many progressives and indeed some conservatives in the Senate. Mike Lee, my former boss, actually, I worked for Mike Lee in the Senate a decade ago for one summer during law school. Mike Lee and Rand Paul are certainly big fans of reasserting the war powers resolution and for trying to tamed down presidential war powers in general there. So it, it's, wor it's worth unpacking this. And the basic legal question that I want to unpack here in our limited time is, is what the president is doing here in Yemen constitutional? More generally speaking, do you need a formal congressional AUMF or a declaration of war to engage in any sort of protection or retaliatory strike of this nature? So the basic law that Congress typically recites or invokes when it comes to this is the War Powers Resolution. The War Powers Resolution was passed. It was actually vetoed by President Richard Nixon, and then Congress overrode that veto. This was back in 1973. The War Powers Resolution requires the president to notify Congress within 48 hours of committing armed forces to military action and forbids armed forces from remaining there for more than 60 days. So it places some very strict time limits upon what the executive branch can do can do unilaterally when it comes to committing armed forces ab abroad, absent some sort of formal congressional authorization for the use of military force. Again, President Nixon vetoed this in the context of the Vietnam War. Congress overrode the veto. Let's, let's start as we often do, or really always should do, with the relevant constitutional text. So we go to Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution, which is the part of the Constitution that enumerates the specific enumerated powers of the United States Congress. And the relevant textual provision here is that Congress has the power, quote, to declare war, grant letters of mark and reprisal, and make rules concerning captures on land and water. So it's those three words. Congress has the power, quote, to declare war. That is... That is essentially the entire debate there. And, you know, I think for a lot of people, for a lot of people, it kind of goes without saying that when you hear, when you hear the term declare war, oh, of course, Congress has the power. Oh, of course, 
the president cannot take any action unless Congress literally declares war. And, you know, the last time the Congress has formally declared war, by the way, would be World War II. So if you were of the opinion that no foreign conduct, no bombing of any adversaries, no doing anything of the sort, pinprick strikes, no matter what you want to call it, if you were of the opinion that none of that is kosher unless Congress formally declares war, then you probably think that there has been a heck of a lot of unconstitutional foreign policy been going on for a very, very long time, which perhaps that is true, but I want to suggest to you that perhaps it is actually not true. So, again, when it comes to this clause, declare war there, we need to also consider the other textual vesting of power in the Constitution. So, Article 2 of the Constitution, of course, has the commander-in-chief prerogative. Article 2 of the Constitution provides, quote, that the president shall be commander-in-chief of the Army and Navy of the United States and of the, and of the militia of the several states. And then there's also the executive power. This is the vesting clause of Article 2, Article 2, Section 1, Clause 1 of the Constitution. It vests the president with, quote, the executive power. It's a very sweeping, unilateral, residual power. And there was a wonderful law review article from 2001 from two scholars by the name of Sai Prakash and Michael D. Ramsey. And in this article for the Yale Law Journal at the time, they essentially argue that the term executive power was a term of art that was explicated by many of the great political theorists that the framers of the Constitution consorted most frequently, folks like Locke, Montesquieu, and Blackstone, and that the executive power includes a general foreign affairs power. Now, it is a residual power, so they have residual power over foreign affairs, at least where other other powers over foreign affairs and war-making in particular are not delegated to the Congress. We obviously do have, Congress and the president clearly do have, both each has a role to play when it comes to foreign affairs, but the executive power basically includes everything that is not explicitly granted to the Congress. So the Congress, of course, does have some enumerated powers when it comes to war. We just heard about the declare war, the declare war clause. Congress has the ability to legislate when it comes to both domestic and foreign commerce, and they have various other provisions as well. That's all enumerated in Article 1, Section 18. But what if declare war doesn't actually mean ex exactly what a lot of people think it means? So in a, in another Law Review article from 2003, it's a University of Chicago Law Review article, John Yu, in an argument that I have always found persuasive, argued, quote, the declare war clause simply confers on Congress juridical power to both define the United States' legal relations with other countries and trigger domestic constitutional authorities during wartime. So what he's, what he's saying here is that it's actually literally just declaring war, declaring that we are in a state of war, that we are in a state of former adversarial relations, former formal hostilities with someone else around the world, and that, therefore, this has logical implications when it comes to both statutory and constitutional duties and reciprocal obligations and things of that nature. So under this view, it actually is the commander-in-chief clause, that other major clause for presidential power besides the executive 
power, the commander-in-chief prerogative, is actually the commander-in-chief clause that makes the executive responsible not merely for conducting hostilities, not merely for leading the enemy, not merely for leading the military, but also for actually initiating hostilities in the first place. Now, Congress, of course, can intervene to stop a president that it views as a reckless warmonger, but the means to do that, and this is the crucial point, the means to do that is the power of the purse, the most powerful tool that Congress has in its Article One, Section 8 arsenal. Congress can defund any war effort whatsoever that it wants to. In fact, the whole somewhat red herring debate over the war powers resolution notwithstanding, it was the power of the purse that was the means by which Congress essentially sunset the Vietnam War. That entire war effort prosecution was really sunset by the power of the purse. Congress essentially defunded the war effort. And Congress has every ability to do that. They can decrease the size of the Pentagon's budget. They can go line by line. They, they can remove whatever various materiel they want, shipments, supplies, weapons. They can specifically put riders in and say that the president shall not do this. He shall not bomb the Houthi rebels in this case. He shall not do that. That is how Congress is a check on the president's commander-in-chief clause prerogative. The, the alternative, the notion that the declare war clause means something a heck of a lot more than many people would like it to mean, and, and this is, again, I, I, I do admit that this is the most common interpretation that the declare war clause has, sleeping, has sweeping, sweeping power. It's just, it just doesn't make sense with what the founder said about the need for a, an executive and a commander-in-chief who acts very swiftly. So consider Alexander Hamilton writing in Federalist Number 70, describing here how, quote, decision, activity, secrecy, and dispatch will generally characterize the proceedings of one man in a much more eminent degree than the proceedings of any greater number. He's talking here about the need for swiftness and decisiveness of action in one person when it comes to foreign affairs, that would be the president of the United States. Again, the executive power, as contemplated by Locke, Montesquieu, Blackstone, and all these leading theorists who the founders consorted, that is exactly what Hamilton is getting at there. So I think that the War Powers Resolution is likely unconstitutional on its face. I understand what those who would try to reassert congressional power, everyone from Representative Kahana on the left to Representative Warren Davidson on the right and Mike Lee and everyone. I, I get what they're doing here. I just think that when it comes to the declare war clause and the war powers resolution that this unfortunately is misplaced. This has been a wonderful first week of our brand new show, America on Trial. Make sure to go ahead and subscribe if you are not already doing so. Please do leave us that five-star review and leave us some comments. We do want to hear your feedback there. We are really excited to get back in the saddle next week. Thank you again for listening to America on Trial with Josh Hammer. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.